I think I know a little bit about sibling rivalry. My older brother, older by just 22 months, not two years, my older brother greeted me when I came home with a a dirty potato laid in my crib. I wondered, is this just a childish gift welcoming me to the home, or is it a wish somehow, a subconscious wish that he wished I were underground? (laughs) See, I lived 18 years with Dave in the same room, and uh, yet we shared the room, but we didn't share leadership in the room. Uh, He was always the older brother, the firstborn. He was the captain when we played army. I was the sergeant. If we played cowboys and Indians, he was the heavy-handed cowboy, and I was the Indian taking it on the chin. If we played church, and we did play church. My dad was a pastor, and so when we played church, he was the preacher, and I was the organist, accompanist. And I wore a big hat like the local church organist in our church we were growing, growing up in. We had this this playtime, but yet in every case, it was emphasized who was really the older brother, who was really in charge. In fact, we got to the point where we impersonated the Smothers Brothers. If you've heard of them, their trademark zinger was, oh yeah? Well, mom always liked you best. And that was the way we carried on. In fact, I, I got to think that mom liked David best. He got to think that mom liked me best. When I got that red fire engine and he got just a white truck that was kind of boring, he was envious. When he came home with this huge trophy, he gave a speech in high school and got this huge trophy that overshadowed all my little athletic pursuits through the years that were lined up on the windowsill. All of a sudden, David, how can you do that? We had this, yes, we had this envy going back and forth. Uh, And every once in a while, it would go physical. Uh, I remember one time we were in church, and uh, we were pushing each other in these seats we had in Warsaw, New York, and all of a sudden, David just gave me this big brother push and pushed me right out into the aisle. Well, my dad was in the middle of a sermon. And I remember him saying, boys, you sit still, we'll talk later. That was so hard, so public. I remember a time when I was in eighth or ninth grade, I can't remember which, when uh, Dave and I got into another physical tussle. And um, it ended up with one of us having a ripped shirt and one with a bloody lip and I don't remember us sharing any words, but I remember us looking at each other like, whoa, we're, we're getting too big to have these kinds of fights. One of us could really get hurt. And it was like subconsciously, quietly, we call the truce that still stands today. We're brothers. Let's not draw blood from one another. We're brothers. I think when we read the story of Cain and Abel, we kind of think, why? Why couldn't they come to some kind of a truce early? Why couldn't they resolve some of this that's going on? And yet I think in this first sibling rivalry that shows up in Scripture, we get a real help not just for family rivalries, but for the whole family of God, the whole family of humanity in all the rivalries that we can latch our hearts, minds, and sometimes even our 
our fists and bodies around. So let's look at the story for some insights for all of us who have a little bit of Cain in us. What was it that caused this conflict? It's a little bit mysterious. It starts with quite a few differences between Cain and Abel, but are these really at the core of the conflict? I mean, Cain was the firstborn. Abel came second. Cain has a different name. It means to acquire or to produce. Interestingly, Abel means nothingness or meaningless. What a great name. And then they have a different profession. Cain is one who is a farmer who settles to tend the soil. Abel is more of a shepherd who wanders and caring for his sheep. And then from those different vantage points of work, they bring an offering to the Lord. The only difference that really seems to trigger Cain's strong emotions that leads to the conflict is the Lord's reaction. It doesn't seem to be the offering itself, but there was something in in Cain that we can't see that God was, was not able to respond to in the same positive way that he did to Abel. We're left in the mystery of that to say, what's going on here? We can see the offering. We see the outward. But the Bible tells us that God sees the heart. And we don't get to see that in this story. In the Old Testament, we learn that God's not looking just for offerings. He's looking for a listening, brokenness. He's looking for faith. He's looking for obedience from us, not just the outward show. So what was going on with Cain? We're we're really not sure, but we know in the New Testament that Abel had faith. That's what Hebrews tells us. And on the other hand, Cain, we're we're told in 1 John, Cain was of the evil one. He was from the evil one. But we're getting a little ahead of our story. I want to stay in some of the confusion here at the beginning of the story because I think the little bit of Cain in me is often caught up in some of this confusion. You see, sometimes I look at the world around me, and if if you haven't noticed this, it's quite often unfair. It It doesn't dish out you know, just recompense for every act. It's, it's an unfair world in which we live. And sometimes it seems even God makes arbitrary choices between people. If you follow the biblical record, that, that shows up. We scratch our heads and wonder why. We don't know. And in that confusion, we end up getting caught up in some of the things that will lead to conflict. In that confusion, I ask questions like, hey, hey, remember, remember me? Why, why is it that he or she is getting favored and blessed and, and all the accolades? And remember me? I brought an offering. <laughs> remember mine? What is it about the cane in us that is always kind of looking to see if we're getting a fair shake for all that we're giving out? But that Cain in me, that that Cain in you, needs to recognize that life is often like this. And just like this text, we're kind of wondering, what was wrong with Cain? We don't know. The truth is, we don't know in our own lives what's gone wrong with us or what's right with them or what's going on here. We We don't know. 
And in that confusion, we have the possibility of things getting out of hand. And they do pretty quickly, as we read at the end of verse 5, Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And God noticed that and asked, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Be a good description of depression. So this, this confusion, this hurt, leads to anger and to depression. And now these stronger feelings are showing up. And it's as if God is saying, um, let's talk about this a bit. The why questions are tough. I have a hard enough time just identifying what I'm feeling and admitting it. You know, I, I say I'm upset, I'm not really angry. You see, I, I put a label that takes some of the intensity off it, but, but if someone asks me, why do you feel that way, that takes a whole nother leap of thinking and conversation, maybe even in-depth exploration. The why question, though, I think from God is saying, Paul, let's talk about this. The, the Cain in me needs to pay attention to my feelings. Needs to say, where, where does all this come from? Why can't I get excited when somebody else is being favored over me? Why do I have to make this comparison and cry out, where's the fairness? What's, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Let's think about it a little bit. God's calling us in to a conversation. But then after the questions comes a choice. This choice in verse 7 has challenged me from early days of reading this. I hope you'll think on it for a couple minutes and maybe the rest of the week. The choice is, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you but you must master it. It seems even in the confusion, even in the swelling of emotions, of anger and depression, we still have a choice of how we're going to behave. We may not control all this heavy stuff within, but we can choose how we're going to behave. Are we going to do what's right, even when we don't feel all that right? Are we going to do what's right? Or is somehow sin going to take over? I mean, it's like sin is pictured as, as just crouching right outside the door. Crouching down like a wild beast, ready to pounce as soon as you step out. So how, how are we going to choose? What are we going to do here? Are we going to bring this beast under control, or is it going to control us? and consume us. Last night I watched again the 1984 movie Amadeus. You recall the, the theme of this movie is of course the life of Mozart, beautiful music coming out of a vulgar, wild, spoiled young brat. And Antonio Salieri ends up watching this and with envy gets kind of caught up in it, wondering why his music isn't given the same attention that Mozart's music is. And it drives him eventually to renounce his faith. Why would God gift such a vulgar kid in such a way? 
he ends up participating in, in Mozart's death. And then he drives himself insane, and that's where the, the parentheses of the whole story occurs, in an insane asylum. Is that what happens for us? The, the Cain in me, the Cain in you, needs to wake up to the fact that if we don't get some of these feelings explored, if we don't get our behavior under control, this is where it leads. Someone is going to get hurt. I'm not going to go out. It's not likely I'm going to go out on a shooting rampage. God forbid. God have mercy on Orlando and other cities that come to mind and our culture wrestling with the violence. It's so evident still in our world. Brother to brother, sister to sister, brother, sister, sister, brother. Sibling rivalries are all around us. And I'm not going to do that, but I can guarantee if I don't bring some of these strong emotions in check and watch my behavior, somebody's going to get hurt. Somehow, somewhere, sometime, pretty soon. And that's exactly what happens. We just turn to verse 8, and Cain misleads his brother. Let's go out to the field. Let me show you something that's, uh, that I'm growing out there. When they're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother. Notice how many times brother shows up in these few verses. He kills his brother. Then Cain asked, or God asked Cain, where is your brother? And Cain lies, I, I don't know. Seems to be indifferent. Am I my brother's keeper? It's like the crime's been committed. Now there's a little investigation going on. And then in verse 10 comes the prosecution. What have you done? And the brother's blood is crying out prosecuting him. Verse 11 comes the sentencing, and it's pretty severe. So that in verse 13, Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And then in verse 14, he enumerates it. You've driven me away from the soil. I'm going to be hidden from your face. I'm going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. And anyone who meets me will kill me. Here's the murderer fearing being murdered himself. But the Lord didn't intend for that last piece, didn't intend for him to be murdered. And so he, he puts this mark on Cain. And so often we think of the mark as a mark of guilt, and it's not. You read the text, it's a mark of, of God's mercy and grace to protect him from the very likelihood that he's going to get paybacks for what he did. And so I come to this text and I say, wow, the Cain in me, needs to know of God's mercy. Needs to know that even if my emotions get carried away in this confusing comparison with other people, even if I resort to behavior that hurts someone, myself or somebody else, even then, God doesn't give up on us. Do you see the hope in this? God comes after us. He wants to talk with us about it. What's going on here? Can we... Can we converse a bit? He wants to convict us. He wants to bring right punishment so we get the, the lesson and we learn from it. But the last word in this text is not punishment. 
friends, the last word in here is grace and mercy and protection, even for Cain. God says, listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out, you're guilty. But many years later, another brother, Jesus Christ, would come and lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood would be shed. And his blood cries out from the ground. A different message. In fact, the author to Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel says, you're guilty, I'm guilty. The blood of Jesus Christ says, you're forgiven. In me, I'm forgiven. And in Christ, we're all forgiven. And so we have a better word in the blood of Jesus Christ. Only in his sacrifice will we get out of the, the cane in any of us and be forgiven of that natural human tendency. And we're given in him the power of the Holy Spirit to stand against that tendency in the future and to realize that we don't have to go down that line. We now have new strength to be able to love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourselves. Friend, our, our nearest neighbor, our brother, our sister, even our enemies, those who have any kind of difference from us, if they're human, we're to love them as our neighbor. Friends, let's call a truce as best we can Let's call a truce on sibling rivalry. Let's recognize that there is nobody, no matter how different they are, no matter how confusing life gets, there is nobody that stands outside of being sacred and precious and worthy of our respect and certainly is a life that matters. Everybody in the world is a life that matters. And let's learn from the Cain in us and the Cain in this story. Let's pray. God, would you come and fill us with your spirit that we might live in love and not in violence. That we might live toward every person in our world today in a way that respects you and them and your mark upon their lives. So we confess our sin and open ourselves to you in Christ the Lord. Amen.